The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Scream Kings podcast. Okay, that, that has to be one of our best intros. And speaking of intros, let's, let's uh, introduce who also is in the room, uh, or I guess reintroduce in this case. And room, uh, we mean the um, waves of podcasting. Yes. The, the virtual re- uh, recording space. The one and only Andy Scahill joins us again. Hey, guys. Well, I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so thrilled that you were uh, willing to, to join us again. Um, and along those lines, because you are, I guess, yeah, one of, one of the only people who has uh, been on the podcast twice, we wanted to... Uh, you know, as as Scream Kings knight you as a, a Scream Knight, I guess. Ooh, exciting! <laughs> I Templ- just <laughs> Templar. Yes. Well, don't get too crazy, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Ratchet it down. <laughs> I just crossed myself yeah. at, while we were knighting you. Um, uh-huh. I know podcasting isn't a visual medium, but I did that just you know for some dramatic flair. But, but an upside down crossing. <laughs> Obviously, yes. Oh well, I'm not a Christian, so obviously. <laughs> so Knights of the New Order. Got mm. it. That's uh, right. Knights well, of this Rosie Cross. <laughs> I feel coordinated, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about uh of course one of the uh most important uh horror films of all time. Uh, the 1974 classic uh, by director Toby Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Originally, Nathaniel and I were just going to tackle this movie, but I reached out to Andy because you are—you were so insightful in our last episode and asked if you had any thoughts or opinions on Texas Chainsaw, which resulted in a, I think, 20-minute discussion about how you needed to be a guest on this because it's one of your favorite movies yeah. and you teach it in a lot of your classes and it's very dear to your heart. So we're, we're excited to talk about this with you. Yeah, and, and it's a movie that I love to talk about. I, I, I love it because it's one that I think most people just think of as uh, kind of a, a, a like throwaway slasher, but it has so much depth to it and so much so much of a time capsule in this film. So, uh, so I, I do think that the movie is so iconic, we don't really need to go over any kind of plot summary. Uh, and kind of how we have our, our strategy here is let's talk about why this movie is so important. Andy, you've given me loads and loads of details, which I've tried to document to talk about. Um, but but first off, you mentioned that 
this is one of the most disturbing and violent horror films in the history of cinema. Talk to us about that. Why, why do you think that? I mean, it, it's, it's disturbing for sure. You know what's crazy about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And again, if you ask somebody about this film, um, they will think that it's just um, a splatter gore fest where it's all about just bodies being chopped up on screen. What's amazing about this film is that you don't actually see any penetration um, of bodies. Uh, and people think they see a lot more than they actually do in this film. And so it's, it's actually really sparse with its kind of use of violence um, in an almost like antithetical way. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they were they were going for that PG rating, weren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, but it's amazing what this film does through suggestion and through sound design and set design to just give that overall impression of just grime and dirt um, and you know just a sort of filth um, is is what I kind of step away with this film. It's just a dirty raw film, uh, and that's the impression that sticks with me. And that's, that's something that I think is super important when it comes to Texas Chainsaw. A lot of people, like you say, they think of this movie, they've seen Leatherface, you know, he's very popular in spook alleys and haunted houses and <laughs> corn mazes and whatever. I mean, the, the chainsaw is technically his weapon of choice, you know, it's become so developed into our zeitgeist. But the the grime and the dirt and the shots of this film i think is where the true horror is and we'll get a little bit more into the kind of the political environment that this was staged in but yeah i mean here's my crazy memory of the film is i remember watching this as a kid and the most terrifying moment in this film was not a slaughter parts it was picking up the hitchhiker in the van and watching him cut his hand and just the way that that actor looks was so disturbing to me. And that's what stuck with me. I, I, I remember having nightmares about just that guy in the van cutting his hand. It was so disturbing to me. So the movie was produced on a very low budget of only like $300,000. Um, and it's gone on to be, again, one of the most iconic horror films ever. On par with you know, Jason and Freddy Krueger and Pennywise. Tell us a little bit more, though, about kind of the subplot and the undertones about the movie. You and I talked a lot about the Age of Aquarius and the Vietnam War and all of this really deep mythos behind it. One of the really great things to to look for if if you watch the film again is that the mise-en-scene in the film is all red, white, and blue. Um, And and it favors all of those colors. It's it's Toby Cooper's kind of anti-war sentiment. Uh, We open the film with this group of hippies who are driving across uh, the country in this van. And, you know, she's reading an astrology book. And this is a film about uh, Mercury going into retrograde, right? It's about the end of the age of Aquarius. And I think it's a really pointed kind of statement. If you guys remember that song, I went ahead and pulled up the lyrics of uh, the age of Aquarius, because I think, I think it's kind of really important. Where did I put that? And for those of you who might not understand what the Age of Aquarius yeah. is, just for some syntax, it's kind of this almost nirvana state mm-hmm. of sense where there's this idyllic time, everyone's friendly, uh, very much rooted in kind of the counterculture that was developing in the 70s. Absolutely. And there's this song, Let the Sunshine In, um, from here, where it says, Peace will guide the planets, love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of, dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions. Um, and this is the end of that, you know? This is like the end of the hopefulness of the 60s. 
And we're now entering this new era where all these young, hopeful people are just going to be consumed literally by the past. And that's terrifying. And I oddly think that this movie has a lot of poignancy to what's happening in our country today. I feel like in some regard, you know, whether it was intentional or um, not, I, I think America was in some sense in an age of Aquarius before <laughs> COVID and Trump and all of this. And now we're kind of face to face again with a lot of the horrors that our society has just allowed for so long. Absolutely. I mean, this film is to me a progressive nightmare. And, you know, much <laughs> like, well, I mean, Obama campaigned on hope. That was his message, right? Yeah. Um, and now we have um, what I would say is this sort of revenge against that hopeful generation. And the same thing is happening in this film that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is about um, the fear of young people that, that, um, that the time of hope has ended and now the, the past is, is kind of taking over. And this has so much to do with the Vietnam War, right? Where it's young bodies um, who are basically cattle for the slaughter for a war that their parents created. Right. And I mean, that's the history of warfare, right, is young people paying for the wars that their parents created. You know, of course, along those lines, you know, then it's it's no coincidence that it spends so much time talking about slaughterhouses and talking mm -hmm. about, you know, that that that, you know, grandpa of, of the Sawyer family is, you know, he was he was the best at being someone in the slaughterhouse, you know, and and, and along those lines, you know, you kind of can connect that to probably you know that he he may have been a vet in a different war or something like that mm -hmm. or at least that's the kind of the suggestion there that you know he would what what does it say right. that he killed sixty cattle in five minutes and he could have done more if if the the people were faster at getting the cows out of the way and so i I find that really you know a, a horrifying image that that definitely you know talks about how there is so much death that is just so readily available. But uh, another thing that I was seeing in, in, in a lot of my research about the film, just you know, kind of prepping for the episode, was the ways that it, it brought up how um, this film is, is sort of a, a critique of just all of the ways that the government has lied. You know, especially like with, with the uh, oil crisis and stuff like that that was going on or, or around the time. And, and I find it funny that, you know, again, you know, that you can draw a direct connection there with, them getting lied to about you know the gas tanks and oh yeah uh you know gas is coming later today and but then the movie itself lies to you which is interesting you know that 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 opening card saying you know like this is based on true events is bullcrap i think one of the greatest things that texas chainsaw does is oftentimes people think of the horror genre as just kind of this garbage turn your brain off and not think kind of a movie uh, you want to get scared. You want to see the jump scares. But what a wonderful platform to take some of the most terrific things that are going on in the country during the 70s and during now and creating a narrative that speaks to so many people in such a profound way. Uh, Texas Chainsaw, for me, is one of the dirtiest looking films I've ever seen. And until you kind of step back and think about the plot, it has so much deeper meaning behind it even more so than Leatherface and serial killers. And, oh, it's just, it's beautiful, which is odd to say because it is such a gross, horrifying film. <laughs> sure. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, what did this film do to kind of set the standard for the slasher? Not just the final girl, not just um, the terrible place away from home, not just the um, killer with a phallic weapon, but it's really the start of 
or using generational conflict as its engine. Um, and this will really set the template. It's, it's, it's young people paying for the mistakes of previous generations. And the murder here is senseless. These kids didn't do anything to deserve this. Um, and, and that's really the, the kind of feeling of, I, I would say, the, the young generation at this time is, is, is why are we dying? What did we do to deserve um, what we've inherited, essentially? It's also such a powerful movie because it is based a lot around the quote-unquote serial killer, even though he's not really a serial killer, Ed Gein. And this really laid the foundation for many, many slasher-esque movies to come. Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo Bill, mm -hmm. Psycho, Three on the Meat Hook, Deranged, <laughs> Child of God. Um, it, it really is interesting to me that the character of Ed Gein, who we'll get into a little bit later on in the podcast, was kind of this foundation for horror slasher movies. It, mm -hmm. It's it's just interesting because if you look at Ed Gein from kind of a sociological, psychological, psychological, wow, uh, <laughs> st standpoint, he's a lot less scary than a lot of other serial killers out there. And in some regard, his story was a bit tragic. So it, again, it's just, it's interesting how the times can shape someone to be something that they're not. Mm -hmm. you know, I think you, you talked about uh, Ed Gein's connection to Psycho, and certainly uh, that film is, is using his story, but both Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre use taxidermy in kind of interesting ways to kind of represent these people's inability to move forward, right? Yeah. These, are, these are people stuck in the past and unwilling to kind of move with modernity. And, and you definitely see it with Norm Bates' preservation of his mother, his inability. He says, we're all caught in our little traps, right? In Psycho. Um, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what I find so compelling is that Toby Hooper makes essentially the nuclear American family as the thing that keeps them in stasis. And they're so obsessed with recreating this Norman Rockwell-style dinner party in the most macabre way. Well, and it also, I think, kind of lends way to thinking about kind of the modern family then and now and how this construct of modern family almost becomes a vice where you can't see past you know a heteronormative parent structure and the children and if anything deviates from that it's bad um and again just talking about this more and more makes me love this movie so much more <laughs> ah, ah. anyway yeah, one interesting thing is, um, uh, you know, a lot of critics have looked at um, how they dress Leatherface in essentially drag, right, in this film. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking, is this transphobic? You know, what is this? Um, for me, it's a, it speaks to this family's obsession with the need to have the nuclear family to the degree right. that they dress Leatherface almost up like the mother in order to have that image of, you know, the Norman Rockwell dinner table. And I think it harkens back to Ed Gein as well, uh -huh. his desire and want to dress and essentially mm -hmm. feel like a woman. Nathaniel, mm -hmm. anything you wanted to add there? Should we move into kind of the, the pros of this movie <laughs> more so than what we've already talked about? Um, well, so another thing that, that we've you know, only kind of touched on is, is just like the, the impact that it had, I think, on, on a lot of the other filmmakers of the era. You know, you definitely look at, like, Wes Craven and John Carpenter and a lot of these other, you know, big filmmakers and, and looking at how, like, Wes Craven, I, I, you know, is, is quoted as saying something along the lines of, um, you know, that, that he didn't know that you could do that in a movie. 
and and then shortly thereafter he began his film career and then you know his first film was last house on the left which is you know a, a similar level of of depravity i think in 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 terms of the uh the, the grittiness of the film and so i i just think it's really interesting to see how you know in in many ways this kind of set up that uh so many of the archetypes and and we've touched on that already but just that that you know not only did it set up a lot of the kind of the slasher tropes it also did a lot just to simply inspire a lot of the other filmmakers of the era uh, and then just another thing that i find really interesting about this movie you know before we kind of start digging into the plot and stuff is that um, you know in many ways toby hooper uh intended it as as a black comedy which didn't really come yeah. through which is you know why <laughs> he then went on to make texas chainsaw massacre 2 which right. is very overtly a, a comedy to the point that it, you know, the the poster is a, a parody of uh, the Breakfast Club. Like, it's 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 just oh, so right. interesting to see <laughs> how you know even like this particular film stands apart. I think from from the the mm. you know sequel films and all of that in terms of its intent in such a an interesting way that that you know its direct sequel is is very silly and over the top while this one you know still gives you so much to to kind of more stew over and you know i would say that in, in many ways this doesn't come across as a black comedy uh to me this just comes off as as social satire but in in just a straight up horror way instead of a comedic way it's atypical yeah i agree i agree and um there are moments when you feel that almost parody of the American sitcom, you know, when he, you know, puts the chainsaw through the door and he's like, oh, you, what'd you do to my door? It feels very much like a, a kind of a, you know, early sitcom kind of moment. Um, but you're right there, they're far and few between. And um, it, to me, those moments kind of add to the perversity of it. Okay. Well, so yeah, let's let's launch on into some of the, the specific, you know, elements of the film that, that we really enjoy, that, that we, uh, feel you know works especially well um and i'll kick us off just by saying that i really like the setup of the film just you know the 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 discussion of of the the grave robbing just you know kind of coming over the radio and the really jarring shots of you know these corpses that you know ends up being like a bizarre horrifying piece of art and then you know that that gives us a reason for these characters to be there you know they're going to just make sure that their grandpa's grave didn't get disturbed and then you know everything rolls out of uh, you know spirals out of control from there. But you know the first image is two you know it's is a corpse with another corpse's head just, you know, kind of coming out of the chest. Yeah, I mean this family is so strange, right? Because <laughs> there <laughs> lots of reasons, but where I'm going is I was going to say that's like the nicest way to put it. They're just <laughs> so strange. <laughs> it's strange in that you know they're not the sort of typical horror. They create art, which is really weird. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to think of another film in which, like, the monster creates art. And, and it's just a strange combination of deep inhumanity and yet the most elevated form of, of humanity, right? Yeah, I mean, like, the only other thing that, that's really come to mind for me is the Hannibal TV series, the way that uh, Hannibal will stage it, like, you know, grafting a body into a tree or something like that. Uh-huh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and maybe, like, Jeepers Creepers, but, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if, if I approach this film from, like, say, an eco-critical perspective, one of the really, like, strange, disoriented things it's, it does is that it forces me to think of 
human bodies the way that we treat animal bodies, right? Mm -hmm. It forces me to think of human skin as leather, essentially. Uh, forces me to think of human bodies as, you know, uh, furniture or art, the way that we would ha hang like a, a steer head on the wall, you know, and, you might, and not think a moment about how perverse that is. Or meat. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, yeah, the, the absolutely. barbecue is definitely, you know, human flesh. There's, there's so much that is, in a way, like, you can see their perspective as simply just, you know, looking at, at humans as just uh, something that's supporting their way of life. And because of industrialization, I don't have to think about how we kill a horse, melt down its hoof in order to make, you know, whatever. Um, but this film forces me to think about those things, right? Like, because I'm so removed from the production of products that I use every day that require the slaughter of animals, I don't have to really think about those things. I think another aspect of the movie is the character of Leatherface. Mm -hmm. I love how this man, and I really think that gender neutral kind mm -hmm. of serves him as well, is portrayed, of course, as the villain. He becomes an iconic horror villain. But the backstory is so clouded in mystery, you really have no idea the intention, the purpose, the drive for anything he or his family is really doing. And I love the mask that he wears because one, it's just so damn jarring. And two, it kind of creates this level of inhumanity about him, that he's a monster, not a real human. And I think it ties to what both of you were just saying. It, it kind of forces down our throats that humans treat each other like monsters leatherface is a human I, and i would say he's even like a child in this yeah film. um he is certainly abused by his father um and he howls like a child many times throughout the film yeah i know that that gunner hansen specifically um talked about that in order to prepare for the role because you know, when he read it read it, the script he, he saw leatherface as uh you know, being mentally deficient, and so yeah, he would he went and observed a lot of uh, special ed classrooms and stuff like that before he came and he performed as Leatherface because you know yeah Leatherface really isn't inherently like an evil person it, you know he's he's basically doing what he's told to by his family in in a lot of ways, and I love that the reveal is is you know that you know very late in the film is it that you realize that he's not just operating alone that he's not just a maniac in this house but rather that he's just kind of defending his property almost in a, in a twisted sort of way yeah and, and you get to the end and you know we don't really understand what that whole kind of chainsaw ballet at the end is about um but it's so strange it's not it, they sort of like as you mentioned like the opacity of his motivation is really fascinating um, and not just Leatherface, but the entire family are so damn scary. Um, and we've we've mentioned that a little bit, you know, that uh, <clears throat> family moment at the dinner table, and we'll get to that scene, because holy cow. But they each weirdly have this developed personality and this developed character that doesn't really require a ton of plot building. And you, you, you kind of know what trope each individual is and... I don't know, it's just brilliant storytelling. One of the things that I think works the best for me uh, among the Sawyers, because, like, you know, the first one we see is the hitchhiker son. We don't necessarily get a lot of his motivation. We know that he's the one who's stealing the bodies from the cemetery. We, that that does come up. 
um, when his dad is beating him out in the uh, out on the road. The the father figure is is such an interesting character to me, and and how terrifying he is in that like you know he he keeps claiming he doesn't have a stomach for killing, but he is the one who's you know making sure everyone's dead. He's bringing victims to his sons. He's doing so much, and 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 he delights in it, but then he backs off the, out of the room for a minute, and then he delights in it and he backs out, and it's so interesting to see him you know kind of toe the line there of. How how depraved is he going to be? Yeah, I, I think the the hitchhiker for me, I, I describe him as having like Renfield energy, you know, from Dracula. Like he just has that kind of like weaselly um, kind of thing that it's it's like a reprieve when you get him sort of um, expelled from the the van, right? Only to end up in his lair with worse figures, um, which I think is so interesting. Well, of course, we have to talk about Grandpa. Um, yeah. Oh man. Do so, we? <laughs> yes, we do. Well, I, I love that the first time that we see Grandpa is when Sally is trying to get away. She runs upstairs and she sees, you know, what appears to be two corpses of, of you know, elderly people. You know, we have the grandma who's definitely a corpse. But then we see Grandpa and you, and you, you think that he's a corpse, too. And like and, and so I think it's all the more brilliant. You know, when they bring him down the stairs, all of that, you still think that he's dead. And it's not until, you know, they cut open Sally's finger and, like, you know, stick it over so he can suck on it that, that he suddenly Ugh. comes to life. And to me, that's one of the most jarring and disturbing moments in the film. You know, it, it just is. Because we're genre swamping, because it suddenly seems like we're in a supernatural film. Yeah. And, and it just, yeah, throws you such a, a crazy curveball of, like, this man is still uh-huh. alive somehow. You know, right, it, right, that, right. That, that maybe in spite of this awful, insane lifestyle that he's been leading um, for, you know, presumably, I don't know, like 150 years based on how old he looks, good heaven. You know, he, he's still alive, like that, that maybe this is working for him, that, that this, this is this is the secret to eternal life or something. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that echoes what Andy was saying is we are thinking this is like a slasher film and then all of a sudden it almost kind of gives off this necromancy type mm-hmm. of a vibe. Or that, vampiric or something. Yeah, and yeah. you're just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and it's it's jarring. It's so, so good. To the point where I didn't want to talk about the grandpa because he's so gross. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and But, you know, and then we have that insertion of comedy in that thing in the moment where they're telling giving him the hammer to hit her over the head and of course he's you know flaccid and he can't do it um which is an oddly comedic moment um that i I, it's so it's so interesting but in some ways it's kind of classic because we have so much tension built up and you feel like this isn't the time for comedy right We, we want to keep moving with the plot and yet we have to deal with this strange almost slapstick situation this is a little off topic but again i i love how the movie was shot in 16 mm Mm. um i I think it adds such a beautiful dimension to this movie and at some points i i kind of felt like i was watching a documentary shot by leatherface um which just kind of added to that illusion that this was uh you know inspired or based on true events well, you know, I, I think, too, back to, like, thinking about this as an allegory for the Vietnam War. Remember, this is the first televised war. You know, it's the first time that Americans actually saw war atrocities on screen. And similar to audiences at home watching the Vietnam War, we're watching this and we're kind of paralyzed, right? We can't do anything to intervene or to help. We're just these sort of, like, witnesses. 
to the carnage. Um, I, I, we briefly mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, mm -hmm. but I think that the poignancy behind all of this happening in rural America, this mm -hmm. small little town, I mean, Ed Gein was from Wisconsin even, Wisconsin, it's really kind of makes you take a step back and think about our country right now. And are these things happening? The depravity of man is out there. Um, and what are people getting away with in these little towns and sadly in the big cities right now? Uh, the federal agents in Seattle and Chicago and, and everything. It's just, again, I think a testament to this movie is its staying power. It's relevant in 1974 and relevant in 2020. And I think, too, just the sort of percolation of white, like white working class anger in those spaces, yeah. right? Which now gets a whole sort of um, avenue through the internet of this sort of revitalization of white supremacy as a rejection of, you know, I'm sure what they perceive of as, as Obama's America, right? And so I, I think that this idea that this is a film about going into retrograde is so relevant. And this is why I think of it as progressive horror. It's about the fear that the world will spin backwards, right? Uh, and that seems immensely relevant. Moving away, I guess, from those much deeper themes, can we just talk about, like, the, the practical effects of this film? Because Wow, yeah, so absolutely. good! Holy absolutely. hell, it's so good. <laughs> Just, I mean, I have a lot of creepy stuff in my house, so I was low key <laughs> like taking um, like interior decorating notes. Oh, hmm, could I use that skull as a candy dish? That's <laughs> yes, right. Oh. <laughs> Just scat scatter uh, chicken feathers all over your sitting room. I um, had. I had a gentleman over on a date the other night, and he saw my satanic coloring book, and then 30 minutes later, he had an emergency and had oh, to no. leave. Is that a so... real story? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a real story. This oh, happened. You sent him right back to church. That's right. <laughs> Another soul saved. Oh, there we go. <laughs> wow. My mission isn't over. Um, it's it's, but it's yeah. what the opposite of praying away the gay. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, you know, that scene where, um, not Sally, but the, the other female character, when she kind of falls into the sitting room, and I love how the camera ex lets us explore with her gaze uh -huh. all of the things we see, and it's left unexplained, and we just. It's just a masterclass of production design, really, um, because it is so unsettling. And you want to almost scream at the movie to say, no, stop. What is Let that? Me... Yeah. yeah. Can I go look at that? What right. is this? What's right. happening? How did this happen? Uh -huh. It's just mind-blowing. And later on in the episode, I'll kind of give a list of everything <laughs> that Ed Gein had in his house. And it's, it's just horrifying. I guess, was there one uh, particular uh, decoration in the Sawyer house for... Texas Chainsaw that, that especially uh, disturbed you? Because for me, it was the lamp uh, at the kitchen scene or the, the, the headlight that was just, you know, glowing skin with a face. Oh, that one just gets me. Um, and for me, you know, it, it just sort of harkens back to sort of Nazi war atrocities and, and, and all sorts of things. Um, for me, there is the couch made out of, I assume, human bones, although it's kind of indistinct and i think that's kind of the point is that animals and humans are kind of mixed together in this house indiscriminately yeah they don't they don't really differentiate they're all just animals to them for me it actually comes from the list of items that ed gein actually have i'm mm. not 100 percent sure if they even have this in the movie but he made a belt out of female human nipples and it's oh. just too 
things that you would never think should go together. Hmm. Nipples and a belt. Like, hmm. why? So why? Dumb, so, dumb question. He, as far as I know, only killed his mother, right? So he was through his grave robbing. Right, okay. yeah. Um, Edgine is often misclassified as a serial killer when actually he was kind of borderline necrophiliac uh, body snatcher. He only killed two people, so we know. Well, oh, well let's one? save that for the Ed Gein section oh, of the... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Can, can we talk about the, the the dinner table scene? Sure, absolutely. You know, and, um, at some point, I'd love to talk about the sound design in this film, and, and maybe that's a good point to, to kind of bring that up um, in, in terms of what sound is doing for this picture. But yeah, yeah the dinner, dinner uh, table scene is horrific part of what i think makes it work so well is just how often we see like like the the way that it, it has time pass in in this bizarre way of of mm. you know these, these close-ups and these panic shots but then also just like the laughing and the the you know kind of the twitching and the close-ups of, of the different faces like you get to see them almost go through a whole meal even though you don't necessarily see them sitting and eating that much like it it, it makes a, a very relatively short scene feel like it lasts forever uh which i think was very effective but yeah let's talk about the sound design because wow beforehand i i just want to make mention that i think andy you hit it on the head when we were talking about the nuclear family and this movie of course is a product of the vietnam war and before this you know the 50s and 60s uh, kind of that modern nuclear family was just so damn important to americans and then you have a scene like this that takes something that is so innocent in America at that time and perverts it. And it, it just, it, it gets under your skin in such a simple way um, that a lot of horror movies try to do and fail dramatically. Taking something like a, a Christmas, for example, and perverting it into something that is completely what it should not be. Um, and if a movie can do that, I it's testament to its its ability. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, you know, what's, what's compelling to me about the sound, because I, I teach this film um, often in my intro class on um, the week where we talk about sound design, because uh, I think it is a really compelling example of what horror can do. You know, the thing about horror is that you can close your eyes, right? But you can never close your ears. You can <laughs> never keep your ears from being assaulted. I feel like this film is an all-out assault on your ears. Uh, one critic, he called it uh, not a soundtrack, but like a, a sound world. Um, and what I like is that he said that you can't distinguish in this um, film what is fully designed and what is soundtrack. And it keeps moving back and forth between them where the metal screeching turns into screams and then back into metal screeching and then into pigs squealing, right? Um, and, and that all creates this sort of landscape where you can't even really identify what you're hearing. And that's part of the terror of it, is, is, is sort of the unidentifiability of the, the source of the sound. I was reading an interview with um, the sound designer, Wayne Bell, um, who was really sort of like, the, he, he worked boom mic and then ended up uh, mixing a lot of things. But he, they asked him um, what he used for sounds, and he says that he used mostly children's toys. Which I think is really fascinating. Um, let's let's see, cymbals, xylophones, shakers. Um, they used a bass. He says we just tortured that bass, which is really funny. Um, we used a plow, pucking and rubbing various things on it. Um, and we, it was really versatile. We got a lot of sound, 
Also, I learned that uh, the animal noises that you hear in the film are actually Wayne Bell's father doing animal impressions. Hmm. Uh, they're not actual animal sounds. Which is kind of uncanny. Yeah, and it kind of makes me not ever want to meet that man. He's <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, I was... The, the actor from Police Academy who would do all the sound effects, that's what I'm picturing in my head. <laughs> right? <laughs> but but just the, the hellscape version of that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I do love that. I, I, there's, um, there's a machine that uh, people use on horror uh, scoring horror films um, called the Nightmare Machine. And if you've oh. ever heard of this. It's one of my favorite things to, to watch YouTube videos about. It's so cool, right? But what Toby, I mean, what um, Wayne Bell and Toby Hooper are doing in this film is that they're creating their own nightmare machine, essentially, by using this double bass and rubbing things on it and, uh, and then creating these sort of otherworldly sounds. It really reminds me of the story about um, Godzilla's Scream. I don't know if you ever heard about how they came up with that. Um, basically, they took a, a leather glove and coated it in resin and then ran it up the strings of a double bass and then sent that through reverb. And that's where you get that sort of scream howl of Godzilla. Hmm. Uh, but it's cool because you can't identify it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you, you don't know what makes the sound. And that, in particular, makes it eerie and, and uncanny in the most like, sort of basic sense. Yeah, it, it just, it, and, and with this film, you know, it just makes it all very inhuman while it's very natural sounds. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it, it, it takes the, the normal and perverts it. And, and that dinner scene in particular, you know, when she's screaming, and if you listen, it, her screams turn into metal scraping and then into pigs squealing, and it's, it's so strange, but it's so fascinatingly layered. Well, and what you were saying, Andy, about kind of the ambiguity between the soundtrack mm -hmm. and the special sounds, I think, again, harkens back to this idea that this movie, there's no rhyme or reason to the actions that this yeah. family's doing and so it makes sense that the soundtrack and the the noises that we hear you can't make sense of what is what mm -hmm. it's just a whole other layer on top of this movie that just is incredible Do we move into maybe some things that we don't like about the movie as much which mm. might seem yeah. blasphemous uh but but <laughs> I, I can kick us off that's useful yeah <laughs> So to me, one of one of the things I actually struggled with was the a lot of the camera work in the film. Sometimes I, I felt like it worked really well, uh, but I felt like there were other times where I it, we were just getting such bizarre angles and such like sharp, uh, uh, uncanny cuts that I didn't have time to actually like really see something that was horrifying on the screen. Which I at at times felt like it was just kind of a shame because like they they did a lot of really crazy stuff with you know animal parts and all sorts of stuff and i i wanted to, to see it to to be horrified by it and there were times where I, I felt like the camera work didn't let me do that i wonder do you have any thoughts was it just trying to be experimental and you know some things just don't work when you when you try and do that or do you think they were trying to mask things through these kind of quick edits or or, or strange angles i i wouldn't be surprised if if part of it was um just the fact that you know, they, they were going for that PG rating, uh, and so they were trying to show us horrifying things, but not show it all directly. You know, like you said, it didn't have penetration um, directly on screen or things like that. And so I think, you know, some of it was just trying to edit it down in a way to make it uh, work with the MPAA. Because, cause yeah, the, the you know, the, the classic stories that they try to go for a PG rating, 
and then they got an X rating, and so then they had to cut it down a little bit to make it be R. And so, to me, I think it's it's a combination of that, and also just um, sometimes, yeah, they just were trying things, you know, they were just very experimental, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't for, for certain shots. For me, I think two issues, they're not even really issues, I think they're kind of quote-unquote cons that are actually pros for the movie um is one i think it is just such an iconic film that it can't be remade Mm. i've seen a lot of remakes of this film probably more than i've wanted to Hmm. um and nothing nothing comes close to the original um i think people do you mean literal remakes of this film uh, any sequels or, uh, or any of those remakes sure. uh, there's a freebie on hulu right now i think it was made in 2002 or 2004 but i just feel like nothing comes close to the raw depravity that toby hooper was able to give us here and again that's not a con against the movie i just think it's a legend really yeah it, it's funny i i respect on a certain level the the remake um what's 2000 11 i forget oh uh, wow uh the jessica biel one whenever that was made it was 2001 but when i walk away with that movie is that it's just too pretty <laughs> for me it's too slick it's too polished um and what i find so terrifying about this one is that it does look like uh, a home movie it does it's just dirty and gritty and ugly and i think the polish of the more contemporary remake takes that away from it that yeah kind of horror i, I agree um, I also think that because this movie has just become so incorporated into the horror kind of zeitgeist, I always feel so fancy when I say that word, it kind of deters people because I think a lot of individuals hear Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they think Leatherface and the Chainsaw and it's going to be this gory, bloody torture porn of a show. And so they avoid it. And it's a tragedy because, again, it's it's incredibly profound mm. and uh, everyone needs to see this movie if if you like horror if you don't because of the societal implications that right. weigh it down um one issue that i have with this film and, and maybe how it's not aged as well for me is its use of disability um so not just not just the sort of uh, possible mental retardation of, of leatherface but particularly the character franklin is always really disturbing to me when I watch this film. Especially in the, the opening scene of the film in Van, they seem to suggest a, a commonality between him and the hitchhiker, right? Um, in his like obsession with the macabre. Um, and then he becomes such an infantile character and annoying, right? That I think the film purposely courts a desire on your part to see him attacked. Nathaniel has a lot to say about Franklin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And, and like along those lines, I, I, I feel like um, they made him such uh, an infantile and obnoxious character that honestly, I think the first time I watched the film, I didn't really like it that much just because I hated Franklin so much. Like, you know, just like that, the, there's almost like a full minute of him just like blowing raspberries at people just. Like, that was just so immature and stupid and, and unrealistic that, I don't know, yeah, to, to me, it, yeah, it, it, it didn't understand that there's a difference between, like, being physically handicapped in some way, you know, that, that, that we have him, uh-huh. you know, in a wheelchair, and then suddenly, like, uh, uh, that inherently that he has to be, you know, mentally deficient in some way or something like that, that, like, uh-huh. I don't know, it, 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 it felt like it was saying something that wasn't 
true or accurate or uh, productive. Yeah. And the way that they play his, like, wheelchair rolling, you know, off the highway for laughs, it's just he's really there to be the butt of the joke. And really, I think it, it really instills in us a desire to see him eliminate, which is... Um, kind of weird for me from a modern perspective. Like, I guess to be fair, like a lot of that that has had a, an interesting impact in that, like a lot of times with slasher movies, especially like uh, what's coming to mind is a lot of the like Friday the Thirteenth films. They they mm-hmm. make characters that you love to hate, that that you want to see them get killed, and so yeah, it, it's just kind of a weird choice to do that with the the one character with like a physical disability and and absolutely. I don't know. Yeah, there, there's definitely kind of a lot uh, that feels problematic about him that's even hard to put into words. I'm curious there's other thoughts about what his character is even doing in this film. What's his function? You know, I, I, I keep trying to like think of, yeah, like what is his role exactly? Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm trying to look at it through the lens of like, you know, this is, you know, definitely being very uh, critical of the Vietnam War and things like that. You know, is it is it saying that like, you know, he is almost such a, a throwaway because he didn't have, you know, a, an ideal human body, you know, quote unquote, for 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 being a soldier or being something like that, that, you know, that that even we don't like him because, you know, he, he can't even be proper cannon fodder. Sure. Or I'm thinking about how many soldiers came home from the war disabled. Right. And there weren't any services to provide for them. And they were kind of left to their own devices, really. But then I don't really know what this film's doing with that, if, if that's the case, if I'm supposed to think of him as the allegory of the, the, the soldier come home from war, abandoned by his country. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But the, the more troubling part for me is not so much that he is this sort of like feeble invalid, but that they really sort of set, suggest a sociopathology on his part um, and a sort of commonality between him and the hitchhiker. I don't know what that's doing in the film. Well, and that commonality, I don't think, is only with the hitchhiker. I think uh, if you look at Leatherface and the Sawyers and Franklin, everyone who is not kind of that cis, normal, American, white individual is either super annoying or mentally unstable and a sociopath in the movie. And so I wonder if there is some kind of political tension behind that going on. Yeah. Should we rank this movie? Oh. Yeah, let's 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 throw some ratings at this. So I can kick us off with that. Uh, so for for screams, I would give this movie a seven. Uh, there are some really strong scares in the movie, but at the end of the day, because they they pull back, uh, I I felt like it it the the scary moments were very scary, but it takes a long time to get to the scares. Um, I gave it a six point five. I agree. Um, so six point five. Uh, I think the horror behind this movie is a lot more conceptual and cerebral, um, which is important and it can be terrifying. But like Nathaniel mentioned, a lot of the pulling away to try and keep it PG, I think, weakens the just sheer terror of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I think around a seven for me. Um, I, I do think it has some hills and valleys. Like, like I said, I find that opening scene the hitchhiker one of the most disturbing sequences and maybe that's it maybe i'm more disturbed by this film than i am scared Um, yeah it it makes me very uncomfortable this film and another moment in the dinner scene it's having her kind of strapped to the table is scary but when they like go in on the white of her eyeball and just stay there i find that so disturbing and so yeah i guess i guess this film fills me with dread more than it 
shocks and horrifies me. Okay, so as far as crowns go, crowns represent what we how good of a movie we think it is. So mm. again, it's a one to ten scale, and I gave it an eight point five. I don't know if I've I've come close to a movie this good, like Hereditary and Midsummer are some of my all time favorites. And this is definitely up there. For people who are obsessed with the horror genre, you have to see this movie. Mm-hmm. It's um and again, even if you're not a fan of horror, it's just such a powerful and poetic movie yeah i i also uh i'm gonna give it an eight um and honestly the the gap between you know that and and being perfect is is mostly just rooted in franklin being just (laughs) (laughs) the enigma yeah um i i'll say uh uh crowns is what like it's it's importance or just how good of a movie movie. just just quality of film I don't think it's without flaws. I think, um, you know, we really don't know much about um, Sally in this film. I think the character development is pretty thin, um, especially for the the young protagonist. Um, I feel like it needs a little bit more in the third act than her escaping the house and going back, you know, into the house. Um, So I'll, I'll give it an eight in terms of script writing. So now that we have ranked, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Should we talk about uh, one of its biggest inspirations, Ed Gein? Yeah, I would love to talk about serial killers. <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes. It's fine. It's cool. It's normal. <laughs> um, so yeah, Ed Gein is one of the most iconic serial killers, I think, too. Well, again, he's not really a serial killer, but I'm going to probably use that phrase quite a bit just to be succinct. So Ed Gein... Let me just pull up my notes here, make sure I don't forget anything. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, he was born in Wisconsin in 1906. Uh, So incredibly early as far as America goes. Uh, Of course, the country had been well established for a while, but in Wisconsin in particular, very, very backwards, very conservative, um, very religious. Think of every stereotype you know about 1906, and it applies. he came from a very difficult family. His mother, Augusta, hated his father. His father was very lazy, an alcoholic, couldn't keep a job for anything. And she came from a very kind of prominent family in the area and was very haughty and prideful and insulting to his father and also insulting to a lot of the townsfolk. Um, if you didn't like it the Augusta way, then you were in the wrong and she was always in the right. Uh, and because of this, she isolated herself and her family for a very long time. Um, Ed, when he was little, kind of had these weird tics. He would repeat himself often or think aloud, you know, kind of whimsical, quirky things that kids do. And uh, Augusta would absolutely not allow him to make any sort of friends if he brought home friends uh, they were turned away she would ridicule them insult them to the point that they just would not hang out Uh, and on top of that she was very religious outrageously religious especially in terms of morality chastity sexual expression Um, of course that being 1906 doesn't help this situation (laughs) and so there was a lot of toxicity in the household of ed gein and 
His brother passed away very early on in his life, and a lot of people think he actually was Ed Gein's first murder. That's still unconfirmed. Then his father passed away, and so for a long time, it was just Ed Gein and Augusta. Um, and eventually, she had her first stroke, which rendered her essentially incapacitated. So Ed Gein was spending 24-7 with this woman who was essentially dictating how he lived his life. Um, and ultimately, she had another stroke and died, uh, leaving Ed Gein this amazing and large house in the middle of Wisconsin. And so there's a lot of psychology that we can go on from here, especially with the toxic mother. And um, we could even go into, you know, queer identity and development. Uh, but of course, the hallmark of Ed Gein is when Augusta died, his life was shocked and rattled. And eventually led him to kill two different women. Uh, he's only been charged with killing two people. And in order to be a serial killer, I think you need at least three in a certain yep. period of time. So more so, Ed Gein was more of a necrophiliac slash body snatcher. He would recall waking up in a graveyard covered in grave dirt, exhuming the bodies of women close in age to his mom. He would then take those body parts back home and do his taxidermy stuff um, and make all of these different things to fill his house with furniture, clothing, uh, you name it. He essentially had it. Uh, and towards the end of his career, I don't want to call it a career, but let's call it a career. He divulged to authorities that really his motivation here was he never felt good in his own skin he never felt he identified as a man or a boy or he always wanted to live that kind of feminine lifestyle to the point where he wanted to make a woman suit from these corpses so he could literally crawl into the skin of the woman he loved most which was his mother augusta definitely you can see how that uh had uh some inspiration for the buffalo bill character of silence of the lambs uh, so the authorities, and you can Google search a lot of these images, and uh, disclaimer, it is very, very graphic. I mean, I I come from a biology degree. I've seen about everything, and seeing some of these pictures, it, it, it gets to you. The list is a bit extensive, so bear with me here, just because it is pretty wild what he created. Um, so a list of things found in his home, whole human bones and fragments a wastebasket or garbage made out of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on a lot of the bedposts, female skulls with some of the tops sewn off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human leg skin, masks made from the skin of female heads, um, a face mask in a paper bag, a skull in a box, an entire head in a burlap sack, a heart in a plastic bag, nine vulvae in a shoebox, a young girl's dress and vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15, a belt made of female human nipples, and four noses. And just one other thing that I think is very indicative of what was going on with Ed Gein is he mentioned to the authorities when he was captured that he would dress up in all of this regalia and go outside and dance and sing and pretend to be female wearing this suit of human skin. 
you 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 had three more things on your list on on the next page. Uh, a a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face, and fingernails from uh, female fingers. Mm. Oh, thank you. Just some real disturbing things that <laughs> I, I had to throw in. Um, and Andy, I kind of want to get your perspective on this. Sure. Uh, just with you and me being queer individuals, I Dahmer and Ed Gein are two iconic horror individuals who I think had they had proper LGBT resources and counseling and the ability to express themselves in a healthy way could have overcome a lot of this kind of macabre behavior. Would you agree in some regard? I mean, I don't know. It's tough to say. I would like to separate um, queerness from psychopathology. I think that link's been pretty firmly established by conservative forces um, absolutely so uh, it's tough to say i mean what we're talking about with ed Gein is and Dahmer is um a sort of um lack of empathy lack of understanding of human beings as as, as people right and and seeing them as just things and that seems to me separate from any concerns over sexuality certainly repression that's... is the monster in this story um but I think that these are deep psychological issues that have to do with their ability to empathize with other people. That being said, I, I, I mean, I, it's tough looking at this, you know, this, this sort of evidence, and, and, and it seems irresponsible to make a, a profile of it gain as transgender. And, and even Silence of the Lambs wants to be, and, and Psycho both, are at pains to, to kind of divorce them, right? He's not a transvestite, he blah, blah, blah. Um, is obsessed with his mother. Um, <clears throat> I mean, this seems like a particular pathology uh, in yeah. both of these cases. Yeah, I, it's I. Uh, I'm remiss to do armchair psychoanalysis of anyone. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's 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 bizarre and, and it's um, sad, and you, and you wonder kind of what was going ahead um, sure. that would kind of allow for these things. Um, we, we talked a little bit about um, My Friend Dahmer, right, the, the graphic novel and mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the film that was made. And we see early on, um, even before you would say Dahmer, kind of like his adolescent hormones turned on, he had this sort of macabre dehumanization of animals and people, right, um, of, of this sort of lack of empathy. And I think that that's at the core of what we see in serial pathology. Definitely. And, and, and I think, you know, you, you bringing up that, that at the end of the day, you know, it, it has little, if, if nothing to do with, you know, other aspects of, of who they are and, and their sexual preferences or things like that is, is important because I feel like uh, so often, um, especially, you know, hyper conservatives, they, they will, yeah, try to tie those together so, so often and, and that's just not fair or accurate. <laughs> Right. And part of the Agreed. demonization of queerness in the genre is that it used to be that um, the killer was queer or bisexual or transgender. And then you wouldn't have to explain anything else. You would say like, oh, the killer wants to be a woman. And they're like, oh, OK, well, of course, they're a psychopath. No more explanation needed. Right. And I think that thankfully we're at a point where we don't accept that as a rudimentary excuse for pathology. Um, there's a comedian, Eddie Izzard, who has a bit of his routine where he, he goes into, he's like, um, you know, there's a, a crazy homeless man and they discover women's shoes in a cave he's living in and they go, ah, that explains it. 
transvestite. And he goes, no, no, fucking weirdo transvestite, right? Let's make, let's crowbar this too. I'm an executive transvestite. That's a weirdo transvestite. Oh, man. I love Eddie Izzard so much. I do too. As do I. So good. And, and just a, a random tangent, he was also so good in Hannibal. So oh, good. yeah, I loved him as like um, a dollar store version of Hannibal Lecter, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, he's he's the best, and everyone should should just appreciate him for his amazingness. Um, yes, Andy, so, if you have a few more moments, mm-hmm. we want to kind of dive into this video yeah. game. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I really want to want to hear what what you have to to think. Okay, so. We decided to tie Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, is the full title of the, of the game, uh, which is a, a game from three years ago, uh, so it came out in 2017 in January, because it is in many ways a tremendous love letter to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Where? Where am I? What the hell? Rise and shine, sleepyhead. It's time for supper. Wow, you people. Edith, it's good. Dumb some bitch wasn't no good if it hit him. Lucas! Get out the way, Marguerite. Hit boy's got to eat. He got to have his supper. Come here, boy. Let's do this. Come on. family son and all and so i'm gonna give a, a few points that that kind of just you know i'll give a, a very basic plot summary and then also hit, hit some points of kind of how it's very different than a lot of the other uh resident evil games because most of them are just kind of you know zombies before i i dig into uh exactly how it uh has how, how it's so connected to texas chainsaw so the the plot summary is that basically you are playing as a a man named ethan uh, whose wife uh, has gone missing. Uh, she was, like, working as a nanny uh, several years prior to the, the events of the game. Just, like, disappeared off the face of the earth. And then you get an email from her saying, you know, basically it just has an address out in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana, uh, just, you know, out in the bayou, and it just says, I'm waiting for you. And so he has to know what happened to his wife, and so he goes down there and um, immediately, you know, just gets to this property where, yeah, there's there are corpses of, of different animals used as, as decorations and everything is just filthy and awful and disgusting. And so he, he just kind of breaks into this house that's actually like a, a side house of, of a much larger property and finds his wife and she's very confused as, as to why he's there. And she's just like, no, no, like you can't be here. Uh, you know, you need to get out of here. And then suddenly she just like turns really like savage and starts attacking him. As the result of the attack, she actually cuts off his arm with a chainsaw. It's our first nod to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But uh, and then suddenly he gets attacked by the the person who uh, is the the patriarch of, of the family that owns the home, uh, who goes by Jack Baker. 
um, he just says, welcome to the family, son, and then punches you in the face. And then you uh, wake up uh, after uh, someone has reattached actually someone else's arm uh, to, to where your arm got cut off at this dinner table uh, where you meet the family. Uh, and it's, 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 you know, directly uh, a huge tribute to Texas Chainsaw Massacre at this, at this moment, because um, there's a, a big feast prepared for you to, you know, be joining the family, but it's, you know, all just like decayed, disgusting, awful food. They're, they're fighting amongst themselves. Uh, the, the, the key family members is we have Jack Baker, the patriarch, who's like a, I don't know, 60 year old man. Uh, then we have, his wife Marguerite and uh, their son, who are all just yeah fighting with each other, and like Lucas says something that pisses his dad off, and his dad just like cuts his arm off, like he just gets a, a carving knife and just like cuts it off, and, and so but but you know the entire scene is is set up, and also you have like grandmother looking character that is just like you know who might be a corpse just sitting in the corner of the room, like it's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and so what you learn, you know, because they suddenly, you know, get a knock at the door from a police officer, and so they have to keep things quiet, so most of them leave the room, is that you, this this family has been infected by something. There, there's basically this this uh, little girl who came in and just, like, infected their brains, all of that, but just the, the design of the of the buildings, the design of, you know, just that, that they have, yeah, body parts as furniture and you know and and that it combines the the animal and the, and the human and all of that is is a huge part of what makes this place seem like Texas Chainsaw Massacre um you know even like the design of the house the layout is very similar you know like when you go upstairs it looks you know much nicer like like what happens in Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the Sawyer family and so it's really interesting to see all of the ways that it nods to Texas Chainsaw Massacre over and over and over again, you know, sometimes very overtly with, you know, your arm getting cut off with a chainsaw or, uh, you know, that the, the dinner scene especially. But these people are very deranged. They're, it, it feels almost like a, a modern update of the Sawyers in a lot of ways. But... In, in many ways, this is also a big departure for the series, because as I mentioned, you know, most of the Resident Evil games up until this point dealt with zombies. And so what we have in this one is, is different monsters um, that are called the Molded, um, which kind of look like just like weird, spiky monster, like humanoid monsters um, that kind of like can come out of this goo that's all over the place. Uh, but, but also, you know, we have is these... Is it spread like mold? It's it's it, it's it's similar to to like mold or things like that, but these monsters are, you know, presumably made up mostly of of yeah other people who have come on the property and then have been taken over, but for some reason this family is all partially these molded, but partially something else, uh, because like they you know like I mentioned you know the the son literally has his arm cut off, but later on it it's grown back. Um, you have to you know go up against these family members multiple times throughout the game and you'll kill them and then they come back in in different ways and so there's definitely this kind of you know unstoppability of these characters you know one of the first major conflicts is is you know getting chased around by the the dad of the family jack having this really crazy fight with him in in a garage and then later on there he is again he's he's back again he's chasing you again and so it's it's this you know kind of persistence of the same sort of characters over and over and over again um and and 
I, I think what, what makes it such an effective piece is, you know, it, it does a lot of things that, that nods to other things in the series. You know, the, the first game uh, in the Resident Evil series is set in a mansion. And so, you know, we, we, uh, this is also set in a mansion, and it has, like, nods to some specific puzzles and things like that that, you know, are very iconic for the series. But it's a big departure because this one is in first person and, and, uh, as opposed to being a third person game, which is every other uh, entry in the series has been. Because it really just, like, yeah, it, it lets you experience basically, yeah, Texas Chainsaw type horrors firsthand. And in fact, they even went as far uh, with the PlayStation version to offer it in a VR mode, which is just too, too hard to handle uh, for a lot of people. Because it's, it, it's, Brutal, I didn't get it to terrible. do a VR horror game. <laughs> yeah, and and this one is is easily uh, probably the the scariest in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, the the monsters are are interesting and unique, while it still is just this you know love letter to everything Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know the the buildings are dilapidated. The it, it it's basically what if Texas Chainsaw Massacre were happening happening on like a, a the bayou with uh, huge mansion and and you know each family member has their own things that they're doing but it's just terrifying and wonderful and and to me it's one of the the top examples of horror video games in general but Ooh. also just as it it's super impressive as as a piece uh really designed for fans of the horror genre in general i, th- I think it's truly amazing like if if nothing else andy you should just look up you know the resident evil 7 dinner table scene it's like two minutes on youtube but it Ooh. is jarring and and it's to me it, it you know it, it takes the the texas chainsaw massacre dinner table scene and almost makes it more violent and worse uh in a lot of ways um but oh. yeah so that's uh resident evil 7 and i definitely recommend it to anyone who likes horror video games i i honestly think that you know, maybe shy of, of one or two other uh, horror video games like Silent Hill 2, among the very best ever made. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, and I'm reading up a little bit about this. Um, you know, I wrote a whole book on evil kids. So, you know, I love uh, a little evil child uh, in, in horror movies. So this is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I I think uh, you you might quite like it because, yeah, this, this fa- or, yeah, the family gets corrupted by this kid they were a, a very uh happy normal family up until that point um you know and it's and it's interesting i like when something takes its influence and understands it and you know mm-hmm. i think texas chainsaw massacre is about this like pathological need for family and this sort of um this sort of image of family and i see that that's kind of at the heart of this too is this girl eveline is obsessed with creating a family yep um, <laughs> so that's really that's really great and uh, i mean i i guess i'll i'll uh, put a little spoiler warning here uh for people who want to play the game and haven't but the the old lady that's at the dinner table is actually eveline like you don't find that out until much later in the game but yeah she like ages at a, a bizarre rate and stuff but yeah much of it you just think that that she's a child that's gonna you know pop out at some point, but then turns out she's actually the old lady that's been just floating around the rooms uh, the whole time. So don't trust kids or old people. But but I love that you know that that you know just this like invalid old lady is also you know the really the one who's pulling the strings in a lot of ways, which is another you know onto Texas Chainsaws. 
And does does this fit big back into the like greater mythology of Resident Evil? Like, do we yes, see it... the the molded appear in later iterations? Well, so this is the most recent game, uh, and they have just announced oh, uh, okay. an eight uh, entry into the series where uh, the main character okay. is going to be Ethan again. But okay. this also ties into the other games in that uh, late in the game you see some references to uh, Umbrella Corporation, which is the ones who created the zombies, and also right. at the at near the very end of the game, Chris Redfield, who is one of the protagonists in uh, many of the, the games, uh, ends up coming in. Um, and then there's also like a, a DLC, uh, uh, probably about five hours long uh, expansion called Not a Hero, where you play as Chris Redfield uh, going up against uh, Lucas, the the son of the family. He he manages to escape in the game. So. So was this girl? Was she intended as kind of a, a bioweapon that escaped? Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah, so so yeah, so she's a, a human bioweapon basically, and and so that's kind of how it ties into that bigger mythology of, of yeah trying to make bioweapons, you know, up uh, the Umbrella Corporation, and all of that. But it's you know kind of hey, this is someone else's bioweapon, and it's way way worse. But it kind of ends up being in a fairly limited mm. area. And, and another thing that I think is actually really cool about it, it that I didn't mention is that there are actually sections of the game where you play as. Uh, Ethan will find like a videotape and put it in, and then you play as like someone holding a video camera. Like, so it feels like found footage sections of the game where, yeah, it 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 you know has the the kind of the grainy VHS feel to uh, those sections of the gameplay where you don't have a weapon uh, for those. You just are going around, looking around, you know, with with a video camera, and it's. Uh, really jarring as well, and and definitely has a few nods to like uh, other significant horror films like Blair Witch Project specifically. But yeah, it's uh, it's quite the the uh, amalgamation of a lot of really great horror. All right, um, anything else we want to say about Leatherface and his lovely family? <laughs> no, I would just say just a, like a little plug here. Um, I I think I I do a kind of a movie night. Um, for friends and recently i did the loved ones which i think is also an interesting take on texas chainsaw massacre and also share some of that dna of just like characters obsessed with tradition and family and rituals to the degree that they will force people to participate in them um we see that certainly in in um, the loved ones in australian horror film which I think we need a full episode on, Andy, because as you are well aware, <laughs> I loved this movie. I have a lot to say about it. It sounds like you do, too. Ugh, it was so good. <laughs> um, but it's, I, I describe it as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre by way of Heathers. Yeah, I could see that. Should we uh, call it a show, then? I think we should. Uh, once again, Andy, thank you for being here. Do you want to give just one more plug for of where people can find you? Sure. Um, so uh, my website, the easiest way to find me, adscahill, S-C-A-H-I-L-L.com. Uh, and I'll try and keep that up to date. And then I'm on Twitter, Andrew Scahill. Uh, and uh, yeah, so either one of those places would be great uh, to find me. And my book, if you're, if you're feeling like you want to know more about evil kids, is The Revolting Child in Horror Cinema, uh, Youth Rebellion and Queer Spectatorship. And uh, speaking of... Uh websites we actually now have a website just for our our listeners to be aware of uh so it's just scream kings podcast 
uh, com. Uh, so if you want a good place to find all social media feeds, all, you know, a bunch of different ways to listen to the show, uh, find our merchandise, anything like that, uh, go ahead and check that out as well. Um, but in the, but I guess if there's nothing else to say, we should just say stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.